Welcome to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with Eva Medelec. If you're struggling to stay ahead of your daily life challenges, you will want to listen close as Eva and her guests will help you address the most important priorities first. Now, here's your host, Eva Medelec. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's show. I'm Eva Medelec, and my guest today is Kafri J. Now, as the executive director of the nation's largest hip-hop nonprofit, Coffrey is a Bay Area activist fighting for racial and socioeconomic justice. He empowers community members to use their voices and resist structures of inequality. And he does so in large part through hip-hop organizing. To enhance opportunities for marginalized people in the Bay Area, hip-hop for change is reclaiming hip-hop culture as a vehicle for education, empowerment, and cultural innovation. So welcome to the show, Kafri. So you, happy to have you ha- join us today. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you reached out. I, I, I'm honored just to have a, you know, a little slice of your platform. So thank you. I appreciate you. So tell the listeners a little bit about you, who you are, before we get into detail about what you actually do in the world and the impact that you make. Uh, well, I'm a black man. <laughs> I'm a black man from Hunters Point, San Francisco, the spot that's not on the tourist map. Uh, so I had a pretty unique upbringing in a quote unquote liberal part of the community, uh, a liberal part of the nation, also one of the most segregated places in the nation as well. So it's been a long journey trying to find my identity, you know, my sense of self-worth, uh, my understanding of what masculinity is for, and, and just my voice as a black man in this crazy country we have here. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting. I think I've done a pretty, pretty okay job. I'm not a statistic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, uh, <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah. Glad to have you. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I turned 25. That was my non-statistic birthday. Um, but yeah, I've been through a lot. I'm lucky to be still here, still living. Uh, and now I use my experiences uh, to inform my activism to try to lift my people up. So what problems do you address in your organization, Hip Hop for Change? Man, you know, hip hop is the voice of the urban community. Yeah, I was talking to Dr. Jackson, the new head of the NEA, uh, at an event in the Oakland Museum a little while back. And, you know, I was like, we always talk about arts, you know, arts, helping the kids with arts. You know, I, I used to minor in ceramic sculpture. Now, I love ceramic sculpture, but sculpt- ceramics is not going to help kids in the hood. You know, it might help a few, like a small percentage of them. But when we think about helping kids out in the hood, we're thinking of a kid that looks like me. You know what I'm saying? We're thinking of a kid who's hip hop culture. And it just it baffles me why we don't have hip hop in schools. You know, these kids are learning Baroque classics and William Tell's Overture and people are mad that they're not falling in love with music. Right. Mm-hmm. And they'd rather be on their headphones bumping. So why don't we put that type of hip hop? You know, there's people playing the violin in hip hop. There's people using classical music mixed with hip hop. Why are we using these kids cultures? And why aren't the organizations that are set up to help these young kids who are hood kids, who are almost all hip hop kids, why aren't they using the culture as a vehicle for, for inspiration, information, you know, for activism? Uh, I think that inspires me a lot because growing up trying to find my identity, I was looking at mass media representations of hip hop. And, and that was, you know, close to the early 90s where hip hop was being, you know, commodified, co-opted by the powers that be. And instead of sold to urban communities, it started being sold, sold to white suburban communities. And certain narratives resonate with them. We don't need to go into the, the fake gangsterism that they love to consume. 
But you know, less and less do we have those cultural, you know, moments in hip hop. Like Brenda's got a baby, like you and I T Y, that can really direct the the, uh, you know, the the thoughts and ideas of our kids in the hood. You know, the ideas that are going around our community are the confines that our kids are dreaming in. So it pisses me off when three corporations own ninety percent of the means of producing hip hop, and they don't care about us. So. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about the hood, because we've got quite a diverse audience that tunes into the show from all over the world, if you will. It's not just uh, to America, though the majority of our listeners are American. You know, the hood has a certain assumptions, yeah. <laughs> if you will, certain certain fears, certain misconceptions about kids in the hood. Now, I know you are focusing on kids in the hood. Tell me what is special about kids in the hood. Well, you know, uh, I, you know, I think America as a whole likes to think of itself as an individualist society, you know what I'm saying, where people are just rooted in their own efficacy, their own ideas of how they can make it. But I feel like poor communities have always been collectivist, right? Especially black communities, brown communities that have, that have been fighting to survive in this country. So when I think of the hood, I think of communities that are poor, right? Sometimes we call it intracolonialism because in my community, Hunter's Point, we don't have hospitals, right? We don't have good schools. You know, we don't have, you know, healthcare access to that. We don't have financial institutions in the hood. We have to go outside of our, of our community to get good produce, you know what I'm saying? So the hood is kind of like a, a colony inside of a, of a country. Um, and of course there's problems that come with poverty, right? One of the only time factors to violence can be poverty. Um, but there's also a, a, a lot of, of community, right? A lot of collectivism. That's why communities like mine, we have some of the lowest instances of rape, for example, right? Um, we have uh, some of the lowest instances of like murder in San Francisco. There's a lot more murder in financial districts and in the Tenderloin than there is in Hunter's Point. Although you wouldn't think that uh, if you think about how like liberal folks talk about my neighborhood, they say, oh, don't go down there, you know. Um, but we do have a lot of, you know, small crimes, things like that. But I think more importantly, we got really good food. You know what I'm saying? More importantly, you know, we have family and communities. Like, I can walk up the street and see my mama's friends she grew up with that will hold me accountable if I'm slipping. Um, so we do have our issues, and most of those ha are tied into a lack of economic mobility, a uh, lack of, uh, of economic investment from our neighborhoods, our communities. Um, but I think we have some of the most beautiful things that American culture can provide. It's the music, right? It's the food. It's like... You know, the kids who are working with stars in their eyes trying to make it. Um, and I think that's reflected a lot in real community hip hop. When we see the stories that people are rapping about, maybe not the mainstream industry, but we see the stories people talk about. That's why the hood birthed jazz, right? It birthed uh, all these other, you know, beautiful, beautiful examples of art and creation. Um, so when I think of the hood, I think of safety. You know, I think, I think of a place where I can be myself, where people aren't grabbing their babies as I pass them. Because when, when I walk anywhere in the liberal streets of the Bay Area, most people with kids grab their babies as they pass me. And I say, I don't, I don't eat babies, I'm full. Your baby's fine, you know what I'm saying? So, I love that, I love that. And one, one thing that I'm going to add to the, the safety of being in that community is the love that that community has for its, its members. You know, I, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, which yeah, is the hood in New Jersey, but I was kind of, in it, but not of it, 
so to speak, because, you know, my parents did everything they could to make sure that I went to Catholic school at that time, because my dad being a cop saw too many things. And he was like, no, not my baby girl. And, uh, (laughs) and, um, but what I do recall about being in those communities, when we lived in the projects, if you will, you know, everybody looked out for everybody else's kids. You know, there was love, you know, and if you were caught doing something wrong, your mama got told. And so there, there's this, you know, and most people may not realize that because they see society's portrayal of the hood on TV, but they don't really see the level of love and community in there. So, so thank you for sharing uh, a really good perspective of what it's like to be in the hood, of the hood, come out of the hood and feel safe in the hood. Okay. So t- how did you get started in, in, in the work that you do now? Where did that come from? Uh I'm going to say, how far do I go back? I mean, you know, my dad gave me an African king's name. You know, my dad, when I was growing <laughs> up, I had these comic books uh, that talked about Benjamin Banneker and Harriet Tubman and Phyllis Wheatley. And, and you know, I had this strong identity. Thank, thank the universe for giving me parents that made sure I knew that my skin was something to love and not hate on because of society's depiction. So I think I've always been kind of an activist-minded person. But uh, I was fortunate enough to cut my teeth at Greenpeace as their first black city coordinator for the 2000 push and the grassroots. I ran their Bay Area street fundraising team. Um, and mind you, I've been protesting and you know, shutting freeways down since the Iraq war. Um, and, um, you know, I've always, I've always you know, thought of myself as a new age Black Panther. You know what I'm saying? At least having that mindset. But I, I, you know, once I started working with Greenpeace, I was like, man, these folks are pulling in a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, they're you doing know good work. Go ahead. You know, I, I heard you say you thought of yourself as a new age Black Panther. There's a lot of misconceptions about the Black Panthers, too, that most people just see them as um, a radical group of angry Black men. And how they started was really to support communities, support schools, support the children, get them good food and nutrition in the schools. And most people don't realize, and that's very similar to the the underlying foundation of the work that you do, is to support the children in school. So I just wanted to make that distinction before you moved on. Yeah, I mean, that's also how the Bloods and the Crips started as well, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people, you know, they, they, they understand the Black Panthers through the lens of how white America viewed them, right? Um, and the Black Panthers, the reason why they got so big is not because white America was scared, it's because black and brown people were so thankful for what they were doing. It was so inspirational to us to have these unapologetic brothers and sisters, you know what I'm saying, being willing to defend the community but also feeding the community, right? WIC, WIC, Women, Infants, and Children, that was based on a Black Panther breakfast program. You know what I'm saying? And it happened in Mosswood Park here in Oakland, uh, which we teach kids in our summer camps. Um, but yeah, I, I, think that, I think that a lot of people, they, they think back on the self-defense aspect, right? And I, don't, I think nowadays they don't even think about it as self-defense. I think a lot of Americans still see them as these radical, crazy people. And in a country like this, I guess it is kind of radical to not let police brutalize your community. I think it is radical in this country to think, hey, everybody should have free breakfast and free education and access to that. Um, but I don't think that's radical, you know? 
Um, so when I think of the Black Panthers, I think of one of the most beautiful and prolific organizing structures that Black people have ever invented that was destroyed by the government, you know what I'm saying, uh, on purpose, as a lot of our leaders were. So, yeah, uh, I do think of myself as a New Age Black Panther, somebody who's trying to feed my people, give them defense, safety, you know what I'm saying, but also stand up and be unapologetic about our defense of our lives, you know what I'm saying? I, I will defend us to the, you don't fight wars because you're gonna win. You fight them because they're the right thing to do. And I argue many, many Black Panthers didn't want to have to walk around with guns and whatnot, uh, but they did because what they'd rather not have is you know themselves being shot left and right, having young Black and Brown kids being shot by the police and the cops. Um, so that's why they went up in the 60s to the Capitol here in California with guns, which was legal to walk around with guns, uh, and they went up there to make a statement. And that's how the, that's how the nation saw them, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. also how the NRA supported, you know, uh, gun reform, right? <laughs> and the first time they supported gun reform is because black folks said, oh, wait, black people got guns? Wait a second. I know, oh, no. I know. I often um, say that now with the, with the fight that's going on for, for gun control, you know, just just give yeah. it, put it in our hands enough times and, and they'll have a different story about it. Same so here. explain to our listeners hip hop. Explain How would you explain hip hop to um, people who are not from the hood yeah. and have this misconception of it? Because I know you use hip hop as a catalyst for change. So yeah. what is hip hop? Hip hop is culture. It's our culture, right? Uh, hip hop is not music. Every culture has a musical component, right? So if I'm like, in Ireland and whatnot, you know, there's a whole culture with Irish people. They also river dance, but river dance doesn't, isn't everything that Irish people are. Just like rapping is not everything hip hop is. Hip hop is how I look. I look hip hop, right? I, I talk hip hop. It's my vernacular, my dialect, you know? Um, hip hop is my chiaroscuro when I paint or do graffiti or stenciling or weed pasting. Hip hop is breaking. It's, it's crump, it's pop walking, you know what I'm saying? It's go-go dancing. It's, it's a lot of that. Hip-hop is fashion, right? Um, I'm not sure if we have hip-hop foods, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but hip-hop encompasses a lot of that. It's how I walk, talk, dress, paint, think, act, dance. I can't take it off and I shouldn't have to. Um, but I think a lot of people, because the one part of hip-hop that is super commodifiable is our music, they just see it as big music. Um, no, hip hop is who we are. It's our culture. And that comes from the communities we were birthed in. That comes from the rubble of uh, places like New York that, that did not have art classes. So kids had to figure out, hey, I could pull this little piece of cardboard out and start breakdancing and whatnot. Um, you know, I can, you know, I didn't have any art classes. So, you know, I stole this paint and started writing my name up on a wall and, you know, writing political, you know, messages like Ed Koch doesn't care about anything or, you know, one famous piece said, all you see is crime in the city. And that was painted over three uh, New York subway trains. That's hip hop to me. And I think it's the creation that comes out of these urban communities and this lack of resources to express ourselves. It comes from communities that need a voice. Um, so hip hop is our culture. It's the way we interact with the world. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's who we are. And it's who most of our kids in the urban community are as well. White, black, Asian, whatever they are. If they're from the hood, they're probably hip hop. And nowadays, if they're from the suburbs, they might want to be hip-hop, too. So how do we use hip-hop as a catalyst for change? Well, hip-hop is the way we express people, express ourselves. You know what I'm saying? It's like, 
I think this, you know, if all you invest in it is uh, violent people, you'll get violence out of it. But if you invest in an entire community, you'll probably have most of the most beautiful narratives, most uplifting things ever. And Audrey Lord said, if you're part of an oppressed community, the very act of telling your story is resistance. Uh, they didn't say you have to have a good story. It just has to be a story. So I think, number one, getting America to know who we are and what we're dealing with instead of what Fox News is speaking about us, right? Instead of what, I mean, even these liberal magazines are, are spitting about us. I think we need to elevate the voices of the actual people, right? So if we can invest in the actual voices of hip hop and get that to be seen and heard just as much as these corporate narratives, I think people will be wildly surprised at, at how strong we are, how intelligent we are, how powerful we are, and how on point we are. Um, and if people see that, then they might stop investing in that fake gangster stuff. And then we start investing in who we actually are. And that'll inspire a lot of our youth when they get to see themselves reflected. Because most of these kids think they like hip hop and they know, no, they only like what corporate media has chosen for suburban, mostly white people, what they think they'll like. And then we in the hood get to pick from what the suburban white folks like. That's not who we are. And that never really resonates with most of us. So. Once we get our most empowered voices invested in and heard, yeah, I think it's all going to change. That's what we go. do. Wow. That was a lot in our first segment. And this was really powerful because I think we, we need to, to, to bust the, the stereotypes, if you will, the negative stereotypes about our communities. So we're going to go to a short break. But when we come back, I want to talk about the common misconceptions about hip hop and um why hip-hop is so misunderstood. So stay with us, guys. We'll be right back after this short break. What's stopping you from having more money, time, energy, and fun? Learn how to break through where you stop so that you can have greater success, better health, and happier relationships. Take this free quiz to identify what's stopping your success and learn exactly what you can do about it. www.evamedelec.com slash quiz. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Having higher levels of energy is something you choose and condition, not something you have. Exhaustion has been a challenge for over two years now. This is the year you can choose to change. Here are five things you can start doing today to reverse the burnout, stress, and overwhelm that is keeping you from living a life full of good health and happy relationships. www.evamedelec.com slash reverse burnout. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are listening to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with host Eva Medelec. Have a question for Eva or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5795. That's 866-472-5795. Now back to the show. Here again is Eva Medelec. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Kafri J, the executive director of Hip Hop for Change. And we have been shattering the stereotypes of hip hop and letting you know how much of a community hip hop really is. So with that being said, Kafri, I want to jump into some common misconceptions about hip hop, because I know when people probably talk to you about this, they've already got a picture in their mind. Yep. what they think you're about <laughs> and who you are based on who you look, what you look like, excuse me. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say this. Um, so we don't really get mad at Mexican people because Taco Bell sucks, do we? You know what I'm saying? Like, no one's be like, yo, those Mex- that Mexican food can't be good. I had Taco Bell, it was crappy, right? And, I, and that's exactly what I'm dealing with with hip hop and my culture. You know, um, ever since the 96 Telecommunications Act, thank you, Bill Clinton, uh, we've allowed for the corporate consolidation and the monopoly of mass media to the point where there's six corporations that own over 90% of all media in the world. Three of those companies, Time, Sony, and Universal, they own 90% of the platform that perpetuates hip-hop. Uh, and yeah, look at Clear Channel, iHeart, you know, radio. Like This stuff is being sold. It's not being told by us. So 90% of a cultural platform being owned by corporate media it's killing us because black people, brown people, we don't have enough money in our, in our country to dictate how we're depicted in mass media. We never have. And so people are like, yo, why y'all rapping about that stuff? I'm like, why are y'all blaming us as if that whole representation is us? It's just not. Um, and, that, and that's the biggest problem. You know, when it comes to, to what resonates, you know, we have our own cultural norms. Back in the day when we ran hip hop, somebody was lying about what they do or how many people they shot and killed or how much money they had or if they were renting out a mansion to do a video and that wasn't really their mansion, people would lose their careers. Kind of like Millie Vanilli, you know what I'm saying? Like overnight, oh, they're faking the funk. Because there's only one rule in hip hop. Let's keep it real, period. And if you don't, I'll grab your microphone and I will talk about you, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, but nowadays, that's the standard is renting out you know, mansions you don't own, renting cars and renting jewelry and, and paying models to come act like they're your girlfriends in your videos. Now, we have so many cultural norms in our community. We don't fall for that stuff. But the suburbs, those kids don't understand our cultural norms. So they've been falling for that for the last two and a half decades, more and more and more to the fact where most hip hop now is just fake lying, fake gangsterism. And people talking about, I shoot and kill, I sell millions of kilos of this and that and that's that's not how that's not how anything works you know what i'm saying and that's definitely not what our culture is for so it kind of it, it kind of feels like people are getting mad at, at mexican culture for taco bell that's that's how i feel you know what i'm saying it's like we're not doing that um but 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 that's just that's what the stereotypes are based in so when i walk in the liberal streets of berkeley Sausalito, San Francisco, pretty much anywhere, most people grab their babies because when they see me, they see their number one uh, understanding of hip hop that comes from corporate media. Mind you, this is so, this is so, so persistent because we're more segregated than we've ever been in our lives uh, in American history. So right now, 70% of white people report not having a single person of color for a friend in this country. Uh, it's because we're not cleaning toilets as much as we used to, or wet nursing white babies like we used to. Uh, so and they, and they haven't been to a person of color's home for dinner. And, and see how we I, live. 
Yeah, my dad didn't say a hip hop black dude like myself. I said a person, a person of color. Person of color, yes. So it's even far more far for you between which, you know, white America feels safe to even interact with me, you know? So when people grab their babies, my first thing is like, it hurts. I just came back from New York uh, doing an interview on the New York Stock Exchange. And I had three elevator moments in one day, just leaving my hotel room. Like this dude would not even let his kid get in the elevator with me. The doors are open, kids start walking in. He said, oh, wait, 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 whoa. <laughs> And I was waiting for him. I have to I have to tell you, <laughs> when I hear stories like this, it really hurts my heart. And I and I know as a black man, this is what you have dealt with since day one. And I'll be honest with you, when I was in my baby making years and having children, I was terrified to have a boy. Yeah. terrified to have a boy. I did not know how I could equip this, this black man to be in this American society and be looked at simply because of the color of his skin as a threat. As I can tell you how. Fear. You don't fight fights because you know you'll win, right? You fight fights because they're the right thing to do. So I don't really have hope for American hegemony, right? <laughs> I don't. I'm not going to bet after 400 years of white America not doing the right thing. I'm not going to bet my money on them doing it all of a sudden next year, right? I'm not betting on, you know, white people saving Roe versus Wade. I'm not betting on the safety of gay, gay right to marry. I'm not definitely not banking on, you know, the Supreme Court upholding stuff that helps black people out no more. I'm, like, I'm not hopeful in that fact. But I am hopeful that my energy can teach some young black and brown people to stand on their feet, to die on their feet. And I know that sounds morbid, you know what I'm saying? But that's how you prepare black kids. You prepare them, let them know that you can be everything. My dad told me, no matter what you get, it can be taken from you in a second, all right? Your whole life can be taken from you. It doesn't matter how big you get, how much money you make a year, none of that. You are in white America. And if you get too big, they will stamp you out like they've done to every leader in, in the past. And if I get hip hop for change as big as I think I can, they're probably going to take me out too. But when you have a black kid, a brown kid, you know, a queer kid, a trans kid, you just have to prepare them to be able to die proudly. That's the only thing you can do in this country. Yeah, uh, and I was terrified those- of that. I'm, I'm going to just out myself right here. I was terrified for that and so blessed that I had, you know, I felt so lucky that I had girls. Not that girls were <laughs> without their set of problems, too, but the burden yeah. that the black man has to bear, it. You know, Coffee, I had to be honest, it breaks my heart when I think about what our brothers have to go through day in and day out in white America. And I just, you know, and it, and it hurts more now than it ever did. I had buried my head in the sand and separated myself from it because I didn't have black boy. I mean, I do have cousins and uncles and dads and all of that, but I didn't have it at that level of a mother. Like you have a child, so you know that parent love. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm embarrassed that I now see it more clearly and it took me this long, but I'm glad that I am seeing it and am feeling it and can use my platforms and my influence to bring light to it, to bring people like you on to, to share about your experience and know that, you know, we don't have to hold our babies in our purses really tight when you're walking by. I mean, I've taught, taught, taught over 10,000 kids K through 12. Like, you should give me your baby. You know what I'm saying? That's <laughs> what I want to tell these people. I almost waited for that dude, for him to come down the elevator, because I saw him put his kid into a fight or flight mode. And I almost waited and said, hey, you know, you just made your kid scared of black people. 
You, you, I just saw what's wrong with you. And this was a brown man, right? The same day I had three Asian women, you know, they were like on their phones, they start walking to the elevator and they said, oh! And I was just like in the elevator. I held the door for them too. And they're like, and I was like, you know, you can get an elevator with me. I'm just a black man. And the doors closed and that was it. Um, so we wear this in every social interaction we're in, but I want to encourage you not to be embarrassed because it is not our responsibility to deal with white supremacy that is pushed on us. Even though I wear this in every social interaction I deal with, you know? We only know, we know, I often talk to white folks who are just coming to uh, understand, they're like, I'm so embarrassed I didn't know this. At, some, at one point I didn't know about patriarchy and how I was you know, detrimentally affecting the women around me. It was a learning process. And once I realized that, I felt the same way, oh my God, oh, you know, and then I started taking up too much air in the room. You know what I'm saying? So I had to realize it. it's not my fault. It's not my fault that I was taught a horribly toxic form of masculinity, right? I part of that part of that came from you know rap being you know commodified by corporate media, where they were selling this wildly patriarchal death music to suburban white kids, and I thought that was my identity. So once you know, you know. But I would I would encourage you not to feel bad. I would encourage white folks listening to this. They're just coming to their understanding that black people are literally on the chopping block and have never been off of it. I don't want you to feel this sense of, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm so, such a bad, no. This is what America does to us. This is society. Yeah. But Shame, you, blame, no. and guilt never, yeah. never supported change. Never. Yeah. yeah. I, and real talk, I mean, if you do have a reason to feel guilty, like if you do, like, please get over there because guilt don't really, White guilt is some terrible, <laughs> terribly hard <laughs> stuff to deal with. It's so hard to deal with it. Um, and it's actually not what black people need. Black people just need people to put their skin in the game. You know what I'm saying? We do what we can. It's also not your job and responsibility to try to change the whole world around you, right? I can't change America. I can't save every black kid. But what I can do is do what I can do. And I'm going to try that. And that's it. Now, you know, if you can do that, Good point. great. Good point. Yeah. So sh- share with us some of the things your organization has accomplished. Let, let's Word. hear some, some of the, the great stuff you are, you're doing in the world. So when I started Hip Hop for Change, I took this model that I learned from Greenpeace and I mixed it with hip hop. So we stand in really affluent, mostly white spaces and we employ people in our communities to stand out there and have you know 30 to 40 conversations per day and raise a lot of funds. Just like you see them talking about polar bears, have the Greenpeace shirt on. This is our uniform. Right. And the first thing you hear us say is, hey, talk to me about white supremacy. Or, or, you know, well, for not. those of you who are listening, uh, Kefri is just pointing to his T-shirt that says and white supremacy, www.hiphopforchange.org. Yes. So if you're not seeing that. That's that's what his uniform is that he's referencing. So we've been around a little over nine years. We've employed over a thousand people in our communities to stand around the streets of the Bay Area having around 30 to 50,000 conversations a year in white communities. Um, white people have all the money too. So of course we're gonna go to white communities to get that money. Uh, and we have been able to get enough capital to actually to survive, to start up and to grow. Uh, the first year I went out there by myself, I raised 26 grand in seven months. Uh, the second year, 183 grand and 363. And I had never even talked about money like this in my life. Uh, last year during the pandemic, we broke 1.3 million. Um, which means now I have to figure out, you know, how to get philanthropy to really boost this so I can spread to LA and New York and then across the nation. Um, but we use that money not only to, uh, we use those, that grassroots means not only to, to get white allies in these communities, because we've got to come together, 
But also that money, we bring it back to the hood to fund our other programs. So we have an education program, K through 12, also the collegiate level where we teach kids the history of hip hop that's rooted in, in positive, healthy self-expression. And to teach that history, we got to go back to Cab Calloway. You know, we got to go back to Pigmeat Mark, and we have to go back to jazz, blues. You know, we have to teach these kids, they come from an unbroken chain of excellence. So when we put that hip hop in that frame, these kids say, oh, wait, why am I getting this crap that I see today? Like, what's going on? Uh, and then we can get local artists uh, who are fingerprinted, TV tested, trauma trained, and their paychecks say hip hop now. And they're teaching kids to break dance. They're teaching kids to do graffiti art, to, to rap, uh, or to make beats and DJ. And that's just our kind of staple program so these kids can you know, get their hands on the practices of hip hop. That'll probably inspire the heck out of them because they've always wanted to break dance anyway, right? Uh, so we have such wild participation in our class and we always hear these teachers say, wow, I've never seen these kids so focused. Wow, and I, and I, I, I joke and say, we've never used the culture, have we? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, that's a good that point. Part. That's a good yeah. point because, you know, it's hard to be connected to something you don't know and understand, you know? Yeah. and like I said, you know what, what we're what what I'm hearing you say is part most of what you do is really creating that connection through a deep understanding and getting rid of the assumptions and misconceptions and stereotypes of what yeah. people think hip hop is and giving our children these brown children something that they can positively identify with that is not. Um, supported by the narrative of the, um, you know, the corporations that have taken yeah. it over. You know, these pe people often ask me, do you tell kids what to say? How do you keep them positive? Well, it's kind of hard to listen to a whole hour of really the history of hip hop and where it comes from and what it's capable of, and then rap about beating up women, you know, or like selling drugs. I don't tell kids what to rap about. They go through an hour long presentation from me and then they're rapping about politics and they're rapping about police brutality and food justice. Uh, so we have plenty iterations of that. Uh, we have a summer camp where we take kids with Parks, California and East Bay Regional, connecting with naturalists and environmentalists, teaching them about environmental injustices. And now they're in Candlestick Regional Park sampling bird calls, making beats out of those, rapping about Mother Nature, doing graffiti murals about great blue herons and ground squirrels that are in the community. Uh, and they're enjoying it. You know what I'm saying? Hip hop is just a vehicle for information that kids are primed for. So when we start using their identity and then talking about justice, these kids light up. They light up. So we taught 33,000 kids K through 12 so far. Half of those kids have been taught for free because we don't turn down the broke brown, you know, kids and Title I schools. That's not hip hop, right? Um, we also do this on the collegiate level. We also have a DNI class, this uh, DNI program for corporations that's rooted in hip hop because it's telling the story of hip hop and and how our culture has been so thoroughly commodified and what it was a reaction to. It gets people to understand black and brown communities really well without really mentioning white supremacy or capitalism. So if y'all need that, let us know. <laughs> Other than that, we throw the fattest progressive hip hop shows in the, in the, the nation, I think. Uh, for example, August 20th, we have our Environmental Justice Summit coming up at the Presidio uh, uh, Memorial Lawn in the Presidio here in San Francisco. We're gonna have a great artist by the name of D Smoke, where we book a really big artist. We make it free, we make it all ages. Uh, and then we get organizations like Greenpeace, or, well, not Greenpeace, they actually haven't funded this yet, uh, but organizations like Sierra Club, the National Public Trust for Land, 
you know, uh, Asian Art Museum's helping us out now. Monterey Bay Aquarium. We get these organizations to fund it so it's free. Uh, and, you know, a lot of young kids of color coming down there, jamming, learning about environmentalism. We have panel discussions and whatnot. And then all the other people who are normally used to kind of like the white environmentalism, they come too. So we get like 70-year-olds fist pumping like to live quality. <laughs> I love you know it. I love it. <laughs> it's so cool for me. Um, but we create these really, you know, equitable platforms for us to enjoy who we are and the issues that are going on in our communities. Because we're not going to save the earth if we keep throwing up pictures of polar bears that people could be, you know, they can either care about or not or think it's a world away. If you put up a picture of a kid in Hunters Point, San Francisco, who's been irradiated by the Navy Hunters Point shipyard, then I guess the literal people in San Francisco might have to care about that more than a polar bear in the Arctic. You know what I'm saying? So that's what we do. We do women's empowerment summits as well, where we have panel discussions with, last time we had eight mothers in hip hop on a panel discussion talking about what it is to be a mother in hip hop. They were crying, the audience is crying, and it's all ladies, so there's babies running around. This is what hip hop is to me. Uh, so yeah, and there's that, that, there's that misconception in, in the white communities that mothers of color don't feel pain, you know, don't feel that mm. same heartache when, they're, when their children are mistreated and mishandled in society. So it's really interesting. We're going we're gonna to have to take another break. Okay. But I want to hear more about how you do go into these affluent white communities and educate them on race and social justice issues. Because I did see your TED Talk in Sausalito. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, Sausalito is a very affluent white community here <laughs> in the Bay Area. And so um, I want to hear about that experience, what that was like for you. And just, you know, let's just spread some some light on the reception that you're getting going into these white communities. So we'll be right back. Stay with us, guys. Having higher levels of energy is something you choose and condition, not something you have. Exhaustion has been a challenge for over two years now. This is the year you can choose to change. Here are five things you can start doing today to reverse the burnout, stress, and overwhelm that is keeping you from living a life full of good health and happy relationships. www.evamedelec.com slash reverse burnout. If you're an influencer, you don't follow the trends, you set them. Voice America influencers are involved in creating change in personal and professional lives, collaborating and driving value to make our lives better. We have world-renowned thought leaders, speakers, authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and some of the most influential voices today. Listen in today to what they have to say. Engage in the conversation. The Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. Answer the call. What's stopping you from having more money, time, energy, and fun? Learn how to break through where you stop so that you can have greater success, better health, and happier relationships. Take this free quiz to identify what's stopping your success and learn exactly what you can do about it. www.evamedelec.com slash quiz. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel.
You are listening to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with host Eva Medelec. Have a question for Eva or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5795. That's 866-472-5795. Now back to the show. Here again is Eva Medelec. All right. We are back with Coffrey J. And we were talking about, you know, how when you are in some of these white affluent communities, people grab the babies and thinking you're going to eat them or something and but yeah. clutch the purses, clutch their pearls. But you intentionally go in these communities to really teach them and educate them on race and social justice issues. Um, I saw your TED talk. Uh, the one you did in Sausalito, it was it was really fun and powerful at the same time. Can you share, are you able to share with us that the, the part of your talent, let me put it to you that way that you shared in that? Yeah. Uh, so let me, let me, let me start by saying, um, most of our job when we go canvas, it's called canvassing when you go out to a community and neighborhood and you do political or activism, you talk to people and try to get people on your side. Most of that is not teaching people what white supremacy is. Most of that is calling the white folks in those neighborhoods that are already kind of on our side. You know what I'm saying? I don't really get paid enough to teach people white supremacy exists. It kind of would break you. my heart to even have to deal with some of these white folks. And even standing in these rich neighborhoods, we get cussed out, we get yelled at, we get called the N-word, we've been assaulted, we have the police come up to us and question whether or not we have papers, or whether or not we're doing something real. We have to deal with so much. Um, but our job every day is to go into this neighborhood and find 20 to 40 white people that are on our side. Um, so that's what we do. We, uh, sometimes we teach some people who are very much on the cusp of understanding, and we can help them out. But for the most part, we're calling in our allies. And hopefully those allies have enough money to help us save the hood too. So when we go to these neighborhoods, for example, I'm in Lafayette, <laughs> standing in front of the Trader Joe's out there, getting cussed out by the white person who owns the entire plaza, who's threatening to call the police on me. And I'm like, yo, just stop yelling at me, back away from me. And if you need to call the cops, call the cops. But I know my rights, I'm doing public, free speech that is protected by the California Constitution. And so if you need to call the police, call the police. But what you're going to do is get out of my face and my coworker's face immediately. All right. Uh, and so we continue uh, to do our work and the police come out there. And sometimes, you know, actually the first time we went back out there, the police was like, you better leave. I see you again. You're going to jail. He wouldn't even talk to me. So I called the sergeant, Sergeant Hackney, and I dressed her down. I told her off, I told her she better get her dogs and if they ever come at me unprofessionally like that again and disrespect me, it's gonna be me and you in your, in your office on camera and you're gonna talk to the people about how that's gonna change. Now mind you, next time I went out there, those police officers left me alone. Matter of fact, when this, this guy came and started screaming at me and also his like 85 year old mom was screaming at me. Too. Oh boy. Just <laughs> <laughs> yelling at me, yelling at me. The police came out and ended up threatening him saying, if you keep bothering them, we're gonna send you to jail. Cause he was getting, you know, he was getting, I don't wanna say violent, but he was getting irate. Yeah, he um, was very aggressive about it. And, super aggressive. You know, and, you know, and that takes an incredible amount of commitment to the cause, to the work, mm -hmm. and, yeah. and to your mission and the impact that you want to have in the world. But it's also, 
scary. I know if you were my son, I, I would be terrified and proud at the same time, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> having like that, said, that mix of emotions. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I'm, I like to consider myself a new age Black Panther. So uh, as a famous rapper said, they're going to get this work. They're going to get this work whether they want it or not. Mm -hmm. But another cool thing that I always tell people is like, I got somebody calling me the N-word. It's usually mm -hmm. six-year-old white men who are like screaming at us. But when that happens, I'm like, yo, this person's yelling at me. Help. And, you know, there's always two or three or four white people that'll walk up and be like, you get out of their face. That is not okay. And then those white folks end up donating a lot of money. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, yeah. And works to your advantage. I, I yeah. always, you know... To, to your point, and, and thank you for making this point that you're not out there to teach people because that's incredibly exhausting. And, you know, yes. unless you are certified as a teacher and have credentials to teach this kind of stuff, what we can do is really create the awareness uh, on these social justice issues and get mm -hmm. financial support to do the work in these communities so that yeah. our children are empowered as well. But mm -hmm. I always like to say something like, you know, we can't waste our time watering dead plants. So I, I love how you're out there in the communities looking for the live plants, yeah. the ones that are ready to thrive with you and be fertilized by, by what you know to support, uh, support the work and su support yeah. the organization and those that aren't, the, you know, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you this, another cool, and the coolest thing is, is, you know, I work with mostly young 20-year-olds who've never done activism before, mostly black and brown kids, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and, you know, it, it was hard for me to make eye contact with white women until I was about 25. We are conditioned because stuff's dangerous, you know? It's, I've never really felt comfortable until I started doing this type of grassroots activism in white neighborhoods. I almost still don't, but when I have that binder, I feel invincible. You know what I'm saying? So for this young black person who's 22, standing next to me in Lafayette, and when the police come and I say, yo, you need to protect and serve me. I have my permit. I'm a nonprofit. Please tell him to get away from me so I can do my job. And they're like, yo, well, you, you asked me, well, you, you know, are you selling anything? I said, I'm a nonprofit, 501c3. Here's my permit. Please tell them to leave me alone. I need to get back to my work. Is that okay, officer? And this 22-year-old black person is like, They've never seen somebody talk to the police like that. So that's so wildly galvanizing for them. They fall in love with that type of activism, right? Same reason people fell in love with the Panthers standing up for themselves. We're teaching these kids how to stand strong, you know, in, in skin that they usually never felt this comfortable in to be able to dress down a police officer or tell this, you know, privileged white person off. I'm like, no, you have a right to be here, right? And people appreciate that. More importantly, you know, I went to Danville. I was canvassing in Danville. That's the, one of the whitest, they have a Trump rally every Friday to this day, right? And I went there, I was wow. canvassing there a few months ago, and they, you know, I had three people say, you know, you're in the wrong town, right? Like, in 2022, I had white folks telling me in California that I was in the wrong town. And you know, my response was, I said, well, I'll see y'all next week. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's gonna be the right town. <laughs> and y'all got the right one, you know what I'm saying? So I'm here for the people, and I'm here for the people. You know, I fashioned myself after Ida B. Wells, Megra Evers, right? Mega Evers didn't run. You know what I'm saying? Why am I running? I don't have it as hard as Mega Evers did. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right? True story. True story. That's exactly what I said to myself when I started being more vocal and visible about um, this work for um, social justice. Yeah. And, you know, in, in my small way, in my small contribution, like I don't have the right to get tired and give up because my ancestors had to deal with 
a hell of a lot worse than yeah. what I did. I mean, I used to tell my dad, I was like, thank God I wasn't born when we were enslaved because oh. I couldn't work in the field. Like I planted yeah. green beans one year and went out there to pick them. I'm like, this ain't for me. This and this is my little flower box. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, I had to get my white husband to do it for me. Yeah. I'm like, I ain't picking no beans. Reparation, right? Anyway, there you but, go. But, but, but you know, I think, I think a lot of people, you know, I have to post on social media like once every couple of months, I don't hate white people, you know what I'm saying? I also don't think that we're gonna make it as a nation without white people. Um, no, we can't I, do I we can't do this work without our no, allies. You are um, absolutely right about that. Mm -hmm. And white folks have all the money mm -hmm. collectively, you know, serious. But but you know, that's why we go into these neighborhoods. Not only because we can get allies, but all those other people that we're not gonna spend time with, they're gonna see me in their neighborhoods with this big in white supremacy shirt that has black letters as big as it could possibly be. And they're gonna see the fact that I'm not leaving. I'm not going nowhere and they can't make me. Right. They'd have to kill me first. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and, and I think that's also important. Representation matters. And it doesn't just matter for young black and brown kids to see me being strong. It matters for those white supremacists to realize I ain't going nowhere, homie. All right. You, you don't get this work. So people even ask me, do you teach white kids? And I, I always say no. Just real quick. Just to see the look on their face. Because uh, apparently they think I'm racist. So I don't work with white kids. But then I always say, of course, I teach white kids. What do you think about me? You know what I'm saying? But my conversation in white suburban schools is a lot different than in a black or brown public school in the hood. You know what I'm saying? My job is to teach these kids, yeah, it's okay for you to rap and whatnot, but you have to be able to respect somebody's culture. You know, if it's not yours, you have to have respect for it. You can't, not, you know, in my, my, my uh, lectures going, if you go out to your car and turn on the, the car and the first thing that pops up on your radio is violence and the, the you know, narratives talking about killing black people and objectifying black women, you are actively contributing to the death and destruction of black people. Mm. Do better, white person. Do better. So talk to me about your rap a little bit. You know, I, I heard you in that TED talk. Can you give mm -hmm. us a sample of it? I stand on the corner. Uh, you know what? Let's do this. Roadblocks in the way now. No knock grenade rounds when the whole block gets sprayed down by some mo cops who hate brown. With my hands up, I get laid down. If I stand up, I get banged down. White hoods on under riot gear. They get fire fear. They bring pain rounds. Same sound my dad heard is his dreams flew like a blackbird, but got shot down and captured. Revolution was his last word. And I'm on my last nerves, but that's third. Because in the projects, we that scurred. These cops are some bastards. They shoot us like Ku Klux. Spraying brothers faster than Hussein Bolt and some new Chucks. The man ain't giving two. The game is how they do us, Scott. Screwed up maneuvers just trying to raise the mood up. We break laws to chew food up. So we fight over a few bucks and decide you got to choose up because forget the middle. My spit will be fighting blue blood because the war zone and the block's cursed. <laughs> it's going to get a lot worse. So every time I see that cop hearse, I remember they shot first. And they're going to shoot tomorrow. They're going to shoot the next day. So what are you going to do about it? You know. Which is appropriate one, seeing as how we we dealing with it again today as uh, we speak. Uh you know, it, it's rough. It's rough out there. So yeah. with everything you do, what's important now? What matters most to you? What matters most to me? Um, man, being unapologetic. You know, uh, that's why I blow up LinkedIn the way I blow it up. And people are like, this is LinkedIn. This is not Facebook. I'm like, you don't even know what my job is, homie. All right, I'm, this is professional post for me, right? Uh, I just put up a picture of an American flag burning on LinkedIn uh, because everybody's telling, saying happy 4th of July. I'm like, if you say happy 4th of July, to me, you're not ready for the conversation. 
You know what I'm saying? You don't, like, what is 4th of July to a slave, right? You know, my, my job is to, and I don't like even using the word radical, although I do think that I'm radical in this white supremacist nation. But I don't think I'm radical when I want people to have equal access to food, to health care, when I, I, don't, I don't want 83% of trans women murdered to be black. You know what I'm saying? I don't think I'm radical. I think that I'm here for love, for heart, and I, I, I think I need to unapologetically wave that banner. I think it's so important today that people are being unapologetic and standing up to their truth and not being scared of professionalism uh, and this false sense of white professionalism that made me cut my hair off when I got my first job. I think that we just need to be unapologetic. I don't care what you believe. I just want you to scream it from the mountaintop. Because right now, certain people have microphones and certain people have more volume than other people. So everybody, I don't care what you're talking about. I don't care what your narrative is. I think if we all start screaming loudly, it'll all work itself out. Well, the squeaky wheel gets the attention, right? Yeah. And that's what we've got to do. So how can folks get in touch with you to support the organization? Yeah. To the allies that, out, that are out here listening to you right now and want to be a part of the change and hip hop for change, how can yeah. we find you? Black-led nonprofits have about 56% of the money on hand. I've been running a deficit since the pandemic. Uh, it has been hard. I've gone a little more gray. Uh, and I'm still running a bit of a deficit. I'm trying to expand to L.A. I'm trying to find out how to talk to Mark Benioff. Right? I'm, trying to talk, I'm trying to figure out how to talk to people that have money. Uh, I don't have much social capital in those circles because I'm from the hood. I, I need money. I need, so I need a million... Where, where, can they, where can they donate to you? They can donate at hiphopforchange.org. Um, yeah, become a monthly donor. Monthly donors are the lifeblood of nonprofits like ours. And we still need about 200 more monthly donors to get back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, so, yeah, I need about $10,000 extra dollars a month. If you want to donate between $8 and a million dollars a month to make that happen, I will use that dollar better than any other nonprofit to do. Because, you know, black orgs like ours, we work on shoestring budgets and have the highest impact in our community. So I'd also like to say a lot of people donated to criminal justice reform. I mean, good luck with criminal justice reform <laughs> with the Supreme Court. Uh, but what we can bank on as black people is our mental health, right? Is our own art, our own creativity. So I encourage America to start investing and in donating to black mental health, to black arts, to things that black people can actually use now. Criminal justice reform, good luck with that. Uh, especially with the Supreme Court, but we need your dollars. We need your dollars, and then we need you to give it to us, and then get out our way. Got <laughs> love it, love um, it. Donate, donate, and donate, and then go to hip hop show. Damn it, go to hip hop show and support <laughs> our people. So thank you so much for being a guest today, and and for the the work that you do, and for taking the stand that you do. And I want to thank our listeners for choosing to listen to the show today. Hopefully you learned something today that will help you get clear on what matters most to you and how you can support. And please join us again next week. And if you like this show, subscribe to it. Share this show with your friends if you have friends who are allies so that they can support Hip Hop for Change as well. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Roy T. Bennett. Don't waste your time in anger, regrets, worries, and grudges. Life is too short to be unhappy. So until next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with Eva Medelec.
We hope we've been able to inspire you with today's show to take control of your own life and focus on the win. What's important now? Until we talk again, have a beautiful week.